Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear a portion of Douglas Wilson's debate with Steve Gregg. Is the Calvinist Doctrine of Sovereignty Biblical? From our audio collection titled, Is Calvinism Biblical? The opening statement begins with the affirmative, which goes to Mr. Wilson. Well, thank you. This is on. Thank you. It is uh, good to be here. I'd like to thank Matt Gray and CRF for sponsoring this and doing the legwork. Thank uh, Steve Gregg for coming up from Grangeville. Thank uh, Roy Atwood for agreeing to moderate. I'd like to also thank Kim Kirkland, uh, Pastor Kim Kirkland of New Life Bible Fellowship, whose idea this was in the first place and for setting the ball in motion. So, uh, but overarching all things, I'd like to thank God who uh, governs all things and in whom we live and move and have our being. And of course, we're talking about what exactly that means, what is involved in that when we say we live and move and have our being in him. This first debate is on the sovereignty of God. And of course, every Christian says, well, how can Christians debate the sovereignty of God? Well, what we're debating is the definition of the word sovereignty, not the reality of sovereignty. Both uh, I and my opponent would agree that God is sovereign over all things. But where we differ is what is entailed in that sovereignty. In order to make clear what I'm arguing for, I want to maintain what I call the exhaustive sovereignty of God. That is, God is sovereign at the macro level, God is sovereign at the micro level. Nothing happens outside of his all-determining decree. And this decree does not create a fatalistic machine that grinds us up like so much hamburger. This decree creates freedom for us. The more Shakespeare writes, the more sovereign he is, and the freer Hamlet gets. Hamlet has freedom because Shakespeare writes. Hamlet, uh, is, Hamlet's freedom is not displaced by Shakespeare's freedom. It is created by Shakespeare's freedom. So I want, to, I want to argue for the exhaustive sovereignty of God. And of course, in the mind of an Augustinian or a Calvinist, if you want to use the contemporary nickname, in the mind of a Calvinist, to say exhaustive sovereignty is like saying sovereign sovereignty. It's, we're just saying, well, sovereignty involves sovereignty in the details, sovereignty in the great things, and sovereignty in the lesser things. So what I'm arguing for is exhaustive sovereignty, and I will let my opponent define his position, but his position is other than that. He does not want to say that God is sovereign in every detail. He's sovereign overall, but he's not sovereign necessarily the way I am defining it, in all, through all, uh, uh, throughout everything. When we first set this debate up, we had no idea that all of us here would still be reeling from the horrible events in New York and Washington, D.C. And we had no idea that we would have such a stark reminder of our own mortality and such a stark reminder of how great God is and how tiny we are in reference to his purposes and plans. But th this is a wonderful exhibition of the sovereignty that we all affirm at some level. These are not mere academic issues. These, these issues touch each of us every day at some level, 
uh, with every step we take, with every uh, uh, head check in the car, every plane we get on, get off of, we, we can see how uh, a number of these people, the death toll is over 6,000 uh, now in New York, every person who died in that tower made a series of trivial choices throughout uh, the earlier part of that day. And all those trivial choices, no, I think I'll go here first and then go to the sandwich shop. I think I'll do this and not that. All of those trivial choices were eternal choices, everlasting choices. There's no such thing, I think we can see, as a small, as a small decision by a human being. There's no such thing as a trivial move. These are not academic issues. These are not arcane theological debates best um, tucked away in some uh, book of theology uh, in, the, in the times of the Reformation. This affects everyone. It affects how we live our lives. It affects how we trust God. It affects how we pray. It affects how we respond to hard mercies. I first started grappling with these truths on a personal level. I've Engaged, I engaged with them on an intellectual level or a theological level in, in other settings, but I first started grappling with these issues, or it might be better to say they started grappling with me as a result of an automobile accident. I was, uh, it didn't involve me or my family, but it almost involved me and my family. We were uh, traveling on the East Coast, and we decided to drive from Annapolis, Maryland into D.C. to go to the Smithsonian. We borrowed a little crumple car and, and you know, the kind that wouldn't take much. And we were driving into D.C. on Highway 50, and it started to rain, and it got really nasty. And then suddenly, this uh, big car came across the middle strip on the, from the other side of the highway. She'd come on the on-ramp and lost control. I swerved and missed her by inches, a foot maybe, uh, but just barely missed her. And she swerved around, and the car behind us T-boned her car, and she was killed. And I started thinking about how many life and death choices I had been making in the 10 minutes prior to that. We have a tendency to, to say, well, you should really, really pray if you're going to ask a girl to marry you, or you should really pray and get God's guidance if you're going to move to another state and change jobs and so forth. And it's true, we should pray, because those are big decisions. But those are big decisions from our vantage point. But I re it, it was born in on me with startling clarity that I hadn't made a small decision that entire day. Moreover, I hadn't made a small decision in my life. Every time I tapped on the brakes, every time I flipped the turn signal, every time I uh, did a head check, every time I did these things, it was affecting what was going to happen down the road. If I'd been five seconds faster, we may have heard sirens. If I'd been 10 seconds slower, we would have been in a traffic jam. And if I'd been one second slower, we'd have all been dead. Not only would we have all been dead, but my grandchildren wouldn't have been here, and their children wouldn't be here, and their children wouldn't be here, and all the tens of thousands of descendants that I hope God gives me over the next millennium or so, none of, none of them would be here. In other words, and all of it was riding on my lane change. And I didn't have time to seek the will of God before I changed lanes or moved here or moved there. Well, the scripture says in uh, Proverbs 16.33, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In Proverbs 16.1, it says the preparations of the heart belong to man, 
but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The Bible tells us that every step, what's, what's more random than the casting of lots? What's more random than the throwing of dice? What's more random than just walking aimlessly down a sidewalk or driving aimlessly down the road? Well, every bit of that is in the hand of God. I also have to confess, connected to this, that, and I'm not speaking for others, I'm not speaking here for every Arminian uh, in the world, but I have to confess that before I came to, to grasp um, these truths, before I embraced them, I have to confess that I was deeply prejudiced against them. I also remember standing at one point in my living room and surrendering to God on the point. The opening prayer I thought was appropriate and one that we should all affirm, and I think we do all affirm in principle, but I can, I can assure you that was a, there was a point in my life where I didn't affirm it. I would affirm it on paper, but I didn't want these truths to be true. I was not willing for them to be true. And I remember having to surrender to God on the point. I did not become a Calvinist at that point. When I surrendered, I didn't become a Calvinist, but I became willing to become one. And prior to that time, I, I was not willing at all. And this is the demeanor that we, we should all have here tonight and in the debates tomorrow. Each of us, and I would include myself here, is each of us should be willing to change, abandon the position that we believe to be the truth of God when someone shows us from the Word of God that it's not the case, that, the, that you've misread the Scripture, thinking you understood it, but you did not. All of us need to be prepared to submit to whatever the Scriptures teach. So, what is at stake in this debate? God is God over all things, through all things, and in all things. He is God over how many hairs came out of my head this morning in my brush. And when Jesus says that the hairs of your head are all numbered, don't be afraid. When Jesus says in the same breath that a sparrow can't fall to the, to the ground apart from the will of the Father, you can look out in the neighbor's yard and you can see a cat stalking a bird. You don't have to say, you know, if that's a sparrow, he's in the, he's, he's the, that's in the father. But if it's a robin, he better watch out for, for, for himself. Because Jesus is using a figure of speech that invites us to spread the truth into the corners. He is not saying the hairs of your head are numbered, but the hairs on your chin aren't or the hairs of your head are numbered, but the hairs on your arm are, I, gosh, I don't know how, much, how many there are. Uh, when, when Jesus uses that expression, he is inviting us to say, the hairs of your head are numbered, the hairs on your arm are numbered, God knows how many little bits of gravel are in your driveway, he knows the number of hairs on the last yellow dog in the history of the world, he knows everything, and moreover, he knows it with these uh, these details being dependent upon antecedent events that are also within his sovereignty. So when we say, when, when, when we as Calvinists maintain that God is sovereign over all things, it's because, it, it's not that we believe that God is a sovereign control freak and God cannot afford to let anybody else do anything or know anything. It's that we believe that his relationship to us is like Shakespeare's relationship to, uh, to the characters in his play. His relationship to us is not like one of the characters 
in relation to the other character. And this is where we stumble. We stumble because we assume that God's will toward us is the same as my will toward another. If I push someone or if I uh, offend someone or if I take someone's life or sin against them in some way, as, as was just recently done on this grand scale, the exercise of will on the part of the terrorists displaced other wills. In other words, cre creaturely wills, created wills, are like billiard balls. One displaces another. If one billiard ball comes and occupies this place, then the other one has to move. And so when, when we act on one another, we act on one another by displacing one another's wills. When we act on one another the way we would describe it as coercively. When we do that, we move someone else's will out of the way. But God's will is not like that. It doesn't make sense to say, now, in this scene in Hamlet, how much of this is Shakespeare and how much of this is Hamlet? That, that's a nonsensical question. If two men are carrying a log, it makes sense to say, well, how much of the weight was borne by this guy and how much of the weight was borne by that guy? That's a, that's a physics problem. But when we're talking about the relationship of God to man, it doesn't make sense to say, well, Shakespeare wrote, did 70% of that and Hamlet did 30. It doesn't make sense to go with the hyper-Calvinist and say Shakespeare wrote it all and Hamlet's a bunch of nothing. It doesn't make sense to adopt the Pelagian view that says Hamlet, or the atheistic materialist view, Hamlet created himself. Hamlet writes his own play. That doesn't make sense either. I think, I believe that we ought to maintain that Shakespeare does 100% and Hamlet does 100%. And the more Shakespeare does, the more Hamlet does. The more God writes my life for me, the more life I have to make choices in to serve him and respond to him and love him. So we are saying that God is God, is God over all things, including the hairs of our head, including the pebbles in our driveway, including the, sands, uh, the grains of sand on the seashore, and so forth. Our lives are lived along a razor edge. Our lives are lived along a razor edge because God has put eternity in our hearts Every decision we make, scratching your head, stopping for a drink at the drinking fountain, everything uh, that you do has to be governed by God. We walk along a razor's edge, and there's eternity on this side, and there's eternity on that side, and we need the everlasting arms underneath and God's protective hands around us in every detail because there's no such thing as a trivial decision. There's no such thing as a trivial act. We're created in the image of God, and so consequently, everything we do is filled with moment. Everything we do is filled with importance. Now, I've, I've said a lot by way of uh, autobiographical information and definition, and I want to say a few things about what the Scripture actually says. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, it says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So, of course, we would both agree that God will do all that he wants to do, but I believe that it's saying more than this. Not only will God do all that he wants to do, but he declares the end from the beginning, so when God creates the world, knowing the end from the beginning and declaring that he's going to accomplish all his good purpose in it, 
then we know that when God creates the world, the world that comes into being is the world that God wanted to be here. And this means that fundamentally, I want to argue that every, you know, lot of, lots of folks won't appreciate this, but I believe that every Christian who affirms creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing, I, w I want to, in overflow of um, benevolence, declare them all honorary Calvinists. Every Christian who believes that God created from nothing believes that the world is here because God put it here, and he put it here because he wants it here, and he wants it here this way. We can debate what his reasons are for wanting it here, but he put it here because he wanted it, want, wanted it here, and he put it here knowing what would come if he did it. He knows the end from the beginning. In Psalm 139, verse 16, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to rest on uh, speculation from a text like Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Psalm 139, verse 16, says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God wrote my biography before I was born. In God's book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me. Well, the days fashioned for me were not fashioned by me. The days fashioned for me were fashioned by God and written, his, written in his book. Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now this is where we start to stick a little bit because we, we really want God to be, as Scripture describes him, kind and benevolent and so forth, and, and he is. But he's not benevolent the same way that we are. He, because his action is, is, does not displace my responsibility the way my action on someone else would do. So God can create evil create evil in the sense of calamity. God can create evil, uh, the evil day, and Scripture says that he does. He creates darkness, he creates light, he makes peace, and he creates calamity. Isaiah, uh, Amos 3.6 says this, and it shows the sovereignty of God, not just the sovereignty of God over nice things, not just the sovereignty of God over sweet things. Many, many Christians love to give glory to God when, if it, if it involves baskets of kittens or pussy willows or nice things, but we have trouble with earthquakes and we have trouble with disasters or this enormous calamity uh, in New York City. We say, Hi, what's God doing? And, and we struggle with that because we don't know, we don't affirm with the scriptures that God has authority over this. He has sovereignty over this, over the free choices of men, as I've already described, and over the wicked free choices of men. In Amos 3.6, it says, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there's calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? And that's, this is something we need to just submit to. If there's calamity in a city, in this case, New York City, will not the Lord have done it? This does not mean that the terrorists are not wicked men. They are wicked men, and they're not puppets. But God is in all, over all, and through all, and there's not a hair on anyone's head in that tower that perished apart from the will of the Father. And this, create, this is a wonderful source of two C's, courage and comfort. There's a purpose in everything. God has a divine purpose in all things, and we can take courage in that, and we can take comfort 
from that. I want to begin by saying the admiration I have for Douglas Wilson and his wife, uh, whom I only recently met, but I had read some of their writings over the years. I especially like their writings about family life. And uh, I was drawn to Douglas personally by reading his books. I knew we did not agree on this issue. But uh, notwithstanding the difference we have on the matter of Calvinism, I was uh, thinking of the many things that Douglas and I actually have had in common. We both were born the same year. I realize he looks 10 years younger than I do. <laughs> I assume that's due to clean living. <laughs> we were both raised in Baptist homes, and both of us began, well, we preached our first sermons when we were teenagers. Both of us played in Christian bands and have written music about the same time in our lives, actually. We didn't know each other, of course. Eventually, we both went into full-time ministry, though neither of us chose to go the route of formal theological uh, training. Both of us are, were studious and studied on our own, and I know he, he got a formal education in philosophy, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, I did not. But we did depart from our Baptist roots theologically on, in some ways. Both of us actually went in the direction of Reformed theology with reference to our eschatology. He became a post-millennialist, I became an amillennialist, both are reformed views. But we went different directions, for some reason, on the matter of soteriology, the doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of grace. That's something I uh, have not understood very well, why people go that direction. But then some of the people here don't know why I didn't go that direction. On my radio talk show, I had a, a Calvinist pastor call frequently and say, Steve, you're, you're an odd bird. He says, you left dispensationalism to become reformed in your eschatology, but why didn't you embrace Calvinism too? My answer is because I left dispensationalism when I found out it was a man-made system. I did not wish to choose another man-made system. And that is what I believe Calvinism is. That's why it took the church 400 years to come up with it. The, the Calvinistic doctrine of sovereignty is not the doctrine, my, my contention is, not the doctrine of sovereignty found in the Bible, and it is not the doctrine that anyone who was a Christian found in the Bible until Augustine around the year 400. Calvinist scholars admit this without any embarrassment. They usually say, well, the church was persecuted during those early years. They didn't really have time to think through some of these theological issues until Augustine's time. Well, 400 years is a long time for the church to think through issues. It seems to me like during times of persecution are the times when the issues like sovereignty are particularly under scrutiny. I believe that's the case in the book of Revelation written to churches that were under persecution, a book that presents the sovereignty of God about as strongly as any book in the Bible. I do believe that times of persecution are the times when sovereignty of God is the most important issue to Christians. And it's interesting that during the years that the church was persecuted, it never occurred to them that the Calvinistic or Augustinian view of sovereignty was found in the Bible. Augustine brought it in, as most are willing to admit, from his own mixture of his, his own philosophical background, uh, he had been a Manichaean, but most would not admit that he brought Manichaeanism into his theology, although it's interesting that the Calvinistic doctrine of sovereignty, or the Augustinian view, is agreeable with Manichaeanism. And although none of the church fathers before the year 400 ever heard of Augustine, well, maybe a little before 400 they did, they did recognize in the doctrine of total determinism Manichaeanism, or they, they often had a hard time finding the difference between that doctrine and the 
pagan view of fate. In fact, I have quotes from about a dozen of the church fathers who, who talk about what we call Calvinistic view of sovereignty. They didn't call it that, of course. And they call it uh, indistinguishable from the pagan view of fate. They call it indistinguishable from Manichaeanism. Uh, some of the better uh, re refutations of Augustine's doctrine came before Augustine was around by Christian fathers writing against Manes, the founder of Manichaeanism. Uh, I suspect, though I couldn't prove it, that Augustine probably had a tinge of his old Manichaeanism ideas about sovereignty that came with him. Most of us bring some baggage into our Christian lives, and I suspect that that may have been the case because he introduced, for the first time, the view of sovereignty that God is all-determining. Now, Christians all believe, as Douglas correctly said, in the sovereignty of God. I would even say that all Christians believe in the exhaustive sovereignty of God. But the definition of the word sovereignty is where we do not agree. I have a quote from um, R.C. Sproul in his book, Chosen by God. He defines sovereignty this way. He said, when we speak of divine sovereignty, we are speaking about God's authority and about God's power. Well, if that's really what Calvinists mean by sovereignty, then all Arminians would agree with them and all Christians who ever lived would agree with them. If someone said, does God have all sovereignty? And what we mean is all authority and all power. Those are the two things Sproul said actually constitute the doctrine of sovereignty. I've never met a Christian in my life who doesn't believe that God has all authority or who doesn't believe that God has all power. Those are basic doctrines that Arminians can embrace too. There's another element though, and this is what not all Christians will embrace, and it is what Augustine introduced. And that is in the same statement, R.C. Sproul continues, and he says that God in some sense foreordains whatever comes to pass is a necessary result of his sovereignty. That God somehow foreordains everything that comes to pass is a necessary element of his sovereignty. Why should we believe this? Because Mr. Sproul says so? Because Augustine says so? It certainly doesn't agree with the dictionary definition of, of the word sovereignty. I encourage you to look it up. If you look in the dictionary, you'll find the word sovereign means a king or a monarch. It means one who has the highest rank and authority. It refers to a person who makes his decisions without being answerable to any other person. That's what the word sovereignty means. None of those things speak of absolute divine determinism because kings are sovereigns, but they don't determine everything that goes on in their realm. Do they? I've never known of a king that did. Now, some might say, well, kings don't have omniscience and omnipotence like God does. And that's why God's sovereignty extends further. I'm not so sure that that's a good answer. That suggests that the only reason that all monarchs are not tyrants is because they have human limitations. And were they given the power to be tyrants, that's what they would do. They would determine every thought, word, and deed of all their subjects. And since God has that power, that's what he does. But you see, when we talk about divine determinism, which is what Calvinism really means by sovereignty, we're really not talking about what the word sovereignty means at all. Because a father is sovereign in his home, a husband over his wife, a, a, a lord over his servants, a king over his subjects. These are all sovereign positions, but none of them determine every thought, word, or deed of those who are subject to them. There is no support from the dictionary, and there can't be from the Bible since the Bible doesn't even use the word sovereign. But when we say the sovereignty of God, if we use the word in its ordinary meaning, we mean that God has all authority. He can act unilaterally anytime he wishes to. He answers to none. And he has enough power to 
to retain his rights and to defend his rights but that word sovereignty does not tell us whether he determines everything or not because that's not part of the word sovereignty and it's not part of the teaching of scripture about god there is no place in the bible that substitutes the concept of divine determinism for the concept of god's sovereignty as a king in fact since the word sovereignty doesn't appear in the bible we have to derive it from the bible from the ways that the bible describes god as a sovereign god is called a king god is called a lord god is called a husband he is called a father all of these are terms that convey the idea of sovereignty but none of them convey the idea of total determinism because that's not part of what sovereignty means that is the problem with calvinism they they think in many cases that they are the ones who have the exhaustive view of sovereignty where everybody who believes that God has total authority over all things believes in exhaustive sovereignty. And I believe that. What non-Calvinists do not believe is that the Bible teaches that God determines everything that happens. Now, non-Calvinists do not put God outside his universe to suggest that God determines how many of my hairs fall out today or how many sparrows fall to the ground is not a problem to the Arminian. And I use the word Arminian only as a catch word for non-Calvinist. I don't know if I'm an Arminian because I've never read Arminius. But I would say this, I'm not a Calvinist, and that, and that makes me an Arminian in the eyes of all Calvinists. So an Arminian has no difficulty at all with the view that God knows the number of hairs on our head, that God orders many things in history to bring about results that he wants. Uh, virtually every affirmative statement that a Calvinist can say about God's sovereignty, an Arminian would say without any hesitation, except that the Arminian does not extend the concept of sovereignty to total determinism. There's no need to do that. No, no scripture teaches it. The question we're discussing is, is the Calvinist view of sovereignty biblical? I've read two books Douglas Wilson has written on this. They're good books. They're probably at the table there. I recommend that you read them with a critical mind. In those books, there are, I would say, in the, in the book Easy Chairs, Hard Words, I, probably, I didn't count them, but I copied out every scripture that was in that book. And there's long lists of scriptures. I, I would suggest, I don't know if you can, probably 150 scriptures in that. Oh. And, and on the different points of Calvinism. I, I don't know the total number. I, I'm estimating about 150 scriptures. I not only looked them all up, I printed them all out. I have them all in my notes here in their entirety. One thing I find interesting about them is not one of the verses teaches absolute divine determinism. And not one of those verses embarrasses an Arminian. Now, here's the thing. I, I was given just yesterday, I don't know who did it, someone sent it to me, sent me a printed debate between a Calvinist and Arminian, I guess, to help me prepare for this. I only read a little bit and didn't have time to read the rest. But the Calvinist was a man named, uh, who was he? James White, I believe his name was. And uh, he started out saying that, you know, Calvinism's strength is that it is an exegetical position. Now, exegetical means you use sound methods of interpretation to look at a passage of Scripture and draw from it the meaning from its context and from the language and so forth of what it really means. And as I read that, I thought, that is a very strange thing to say, that Calvinism is an exegetical position. I don't know very much about philosophy, but exegesis is all I do. For 30 years that I've been in the ministry, I've taught through the Bible 16 times, verse by verse. I don't do, I don't do anything excellently. But the thing I do better than most things is exegesis. I mean, that's, that's what I do. And I've never found any exegetical reason 
to support the, the Calvinist doctrines or, the, or their interpretations of these scriptures. When they say, you know, all that were appointed uh, to eternal life believed in Acts chapter 13. Or when they say, um, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I find that Calvinists don't exegete these passages really at all. They follow more of a procedure of see there. That's, that's their approach to scripture. See there, see there, see there. That verse sounds like it could support a Calvinist idea. Yes, it sounds like that until you exegete it. Exegeting it means you look at the context, you follow the train of thought of the writer, and when you do that, you never find, to my mind, of course, people far more intelligent than I am are Calvinists, and so obviously some have better minds and may do exegesis better than I do. But the Calvinist writers I've read, and that's all the Puritans for the most part, and a great number of other Calvinists, I love them. Very edifying, by the way. They're not exegetical. They are devotional. They are, exegesis seems to be the weakness of these writers. Because as I say, they find a verse and say, well, see, this verse proves it. It's a proof texting system. I do not believe the Bible teaches divine determination, determinism in any verse or any series of verses or any chapter of the Bible. And it is my contention that if my worthy opponent is going to demonstrate that the Calvinistic doctrine of sovereignty is biblical, that we will have to find at least one verse of the Bible that says something along those lines. Now, I've read every verse he listed in all his books and all the verses that all Calvinists list in their books. I've been reading Calvinists for, oh, 25, 30 years. And I look up the verses and I say, why do they think it says that? Why don't they look at the Greek? Why don't they look at the context? Now, I will say this. The appeal of Calvinism is its internal consistency logically. And everybody who's a Calvinist revels in this, and, and rightly so. It's a very self-consistent logical system. The problem is that a self-consistent logical system will not re reach the truth if the premise you start with is wrong. And the premise that it starts with is divine determinism, which is not taught in the Bible. And I, I'm eager to find anyone who can show me a verse that teaches absolute divine determinism. The verses that Douglas has shared tell us a great deal about God determining many things. But the real question is, does God determine the free choices of men? Calvinism teaches that he does. Now, he does this somehow without removing man's responsibility for his choices. God determines who will be saved and who will be lost. God determines whether I will sin today or whether I will not sin today. By the way, uh, in Douglas's books, as well as in all Calvinist books I've read, Calvinists are at pains to deny that God is the author of sin. But Shakespeare is the author of Hamlet's sins. And if God is the author of history in the same way that Shakespeare, or even in a similar way, or an analogous way, or even not a very similar way, if God is writing the book and we're just living out the book, and he's the author of the book, but he's not the author of sin, I'd say God must have had a co-author. And that co-author must have written a significant percentage of the book, all of it that has to do with man's sin. So the, the Bible teaches God does have a co-author. God determines what he determines to determine. And he chooses not to determine things that he chooses not to determine. Those he left to a creature that he made different from all other creatures. Every molecule in the universe obeys God. Every bird, every flower, every planet, of course, obeys God. But God complains that people don't always obey him. He says the ox knows its master, the, the ass knows its uh, master's crib, but my people, Israel, they don't know me. They don't understand. It, Isaiah said that in chapter 1. Jeremiah over in chapter 7 
said the stork knows its appointed times and the birds, you know, they migrate properly, but my people Israel, they don't go the right way. What's going on here? And every time God complains about what people are doing, God is in a sense communicating something to us, saying, I didn't do this. I didn't choose this. And not only does he do it through every complaint, but he says it in some very plain statements. Jeremiah 19:5, And he says the same thing again in Jeremiah 32, 35. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command. It's not in some eternal decree of God. He didn't command it. He didn't decree it. Nor did I speak it, nor did it come to my mind. God speaks with a Jewish accent sometimes <laughs> when he's really upset. In Isaiah 66, verses 3 and 4, God says this, They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions, and I will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. They chose that which God didn't delight in. Actually, Calvin said that everything we do, God preordained out of the good pleasure of his will. Even the lost are foreordained for destruction out of the good pleasure of his will, even though God disagrees and says in Ezekiel 33:11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked man turns from his evil and lives. Turn you, turn you at my reproof, for why will you die? God does not take responsibility responsibility for the rebellion and the sin of man nor for the consequences but God does I should say he does take responsibility for the consequences God chooses his way as Isaiah 66 3 says I mean man chooses his way God chooses his delusions God is still sovereign to for me to allow my children to choose where they'll go to school or who they will marry does not mean I'm not a sovereign father I can give them as many choices as I want to it doesn't challenge my sovereignty it's just about my style of governing God can be absolutely sovereign and still give some creatures the freedom to choose many things without his determining it. And he doesn't surrender his sovereignty. All he surrenders is the doctrine of divine determinationism, which is not anything to, it's no tragedy to sacrifice that since the Bible doesn't teach it. That is my view. Now, I admit my opponent is probably a, a far more intelligent man than I am, and many of the Calvinist writers I've read are more intelligent. And that is very impressive sometimes. Somebody asked me tonight, you know, what do you do as an Arminian, realizing that uh, Arminianism hasn't had any champions since the time of Augustine? I say, well, Augustinism didn't have any champions before the time of Augustine. And the guys who were within a generation or two of the apostles somehow dropped the ball. If the apostles taught this divine determinism, within a generation, all the Christians lost the doctrine. It just disappeared. And whenever they heard it, they thought it was part of Manichaeanism or paganism. Interesting. And then Augustine comes along and he mixes neo-paganism, I should say neo-Platonism, that's paganism too, with Christianity and becomes the most influential theologian in history, even more influential than Paul since more people believe what Augustine said than what Paul said. But the fact is, it's a man-made doctrine. And I left dispensationalism because it was a man-made doctrine. I did not join the Calvinist ranks because I didn't want to just exchange one man-made doctrine for another. And so if anyone wonders, why didn't you become a Calvinist? That's why. I am a person concerned about exegesis, and I will be glad to exegete any scripture any Calvinist wants to present, and I'd be glad to show that from context, the Calvinist exegesis is inferior to the historic Christian exegesis. And so I, my contention is the Calvinist doctrine of divine sovereignty is not biblical. But the biblical doctrine of divine sovereignty certainly is. Thank you. Thank you. We now go to the uh, 
10 minute responses beginning with mr wilson in this response time i'm going to try and talk fast if you me too first i thought that steve was going to be nice to me by attributing our parents to my clean living but then he brought up my philosophy degree and <laughs> everyone has skeletons everyone has skeletons i want you to, i want to point out some things that are of minor importance and other other things that are significant first when he says it took the church 400 years to come up with these truths i want you to notice the begging of the question of course if we were debating something that uh, that was simply um, fought over by theologians in the course of church history, that's a legitimate uh, question. But what we're actually talking about is what the scripture says. And we, we could say it took the church 300 years to come up with the deity of Christ. Well, no, not exactly. Uh, that's when it was defined at the Council of Nicaea. That's when it, it got tidied up. But we believe it because the scripture teaches it. So there's, there's a begging of the question when we talk about how long it took the church to come up with it as opposed to how long it took the church and it, it took quite a bit of doing to shake it off but anybody who uh, I would commend a biography of Augustine by Peter Brown anyone who reads carefully through his life will see how Augustine is progressively ditching the Hellenism and the Platonism that he uh, tracked into the church with him and the Pelagian controversy in which he uh, articulates these great uh, truths is at the end of his life, near the end of his life. So Augustine, uh, I, I think it is not, um, I, I think you'd have a difficult time laying the charge of Manichaean, uh, a Manichaean influence at the doorstep of Calvinism or Augustinianism. All authority and power, uh, Steve defines sovereignty as uh, the possession of all authority and power, and then says he departs from the extension that, that, that says that in some sense everything is foreordained. Well, we both agree that God is king, but I'm, we're maintaining, the, the Calvinist is maintaining that God is the king of all the hairs of my head, and God is the king of every detail all day long throughout the course of my life, and this has ramifications for example, to whether the head that the hairs are on is living or dead, how it's doing, what I'm doing, the choices I make that determine whether or not I'm going to be alive or dead. These, these questions cannot be separated from one another. Of course, earthly kings, fathers, authorities, are not exhaustively sovereign. I would uh, point back to the billiard ball example. There's no, there's no way that a creature can exercise complete sovereign, complete godlike sovereignty over another creature without becoming a tyrant. If one creature exercises what I'm calling exhaustive sovereignty over another creature, that would be tyranny indeed. But God's relationship in this respect is not like our relationship to one another. The, the thing that's, stipping, that's tripping Steve up is he says it's inappropriate to extend the concept of God's sovereignty out into complete and total determinism. Well, of course, it, of course it's inappropriate. I agree it's inappropriate. That's why we don't do it. That's why Calvinists aren't what we call determinists. Uh, 
since he brought up the skeleton in my closet, the philosophy degree, my, I did my master's thesis on determinism and free will before I was reformed, before I was a Calvinist. I wrote against every form of fatalism and behavioral determinism and, and so forth. And that determinism that I wrote against then, I would write against and stand against now, today, for the same reasons. Uh, Calvinism is not fatalism. Calvinism is not a blind determinism. So, when he says not one verse teaches determinism, well, I agree with that. Not one verse teaches determinism. But Calvinism is not determinism. Calvinism, one, one part of Calvinism, affirms that God controls everything. God, as the Westminster Confession says, God freely and, alterly, uh, freely and unalterably ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And everybody goes, ack, determinism. But you say, wait, wait, yet, so that he's not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the liberty or contingency of second, secondary causes. So biblical Calvinism, the Reformed faith, emphatically rejects what philosophers would identify as determinism. And if you can take one portion of it out and, and make that deterministic, but that's not what it is. So I, I would submit that to attack Calvinism for being deterministic is to misunderstand uh, an, an important aspect of Calvinism. So we do affirm that God decrees all things. We also affirm that this does not make us puppets. It does not displace our liberty or contingency. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't crowd us. It doesn't exercise any tyrannical influence over us. It's not deterministic. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord comes, God sets us free. And the Reformed faith embraces that and affirms that. Now, uh, with regard to the history of exegesis, uh, one of the things that's, uh, I think, important to note here is that in the history of the church, it was the Reformed fathers, the fathers of the Reformation, who recovered exegesis. If we, if, when you say the word exegesis and you think of it in the modern sense of unpacking the meaning of the text, this was precisely the thing that the Reformation fathers, John Calvin in particular, recovered. If, if you look at Calvin's commentaries on scripture, he goes through the scripture verse by verse, and, and his interest is fundamentally, profoundly exegetical. Well, uh, Steve asks, well, if, he's, if he does exegesis, and he does exegesis all the time, why does he never see what we say the text sees? He says that the Calvinist keeps pointing to texts and, and heaps up a big pile of them and says, see, see, look at these texts. And he wants to know, how come I've gone through these texts, and I don't see what they're looking. I don't, I don't see what they're pointing at. They say, look, look, and, and I look at it, and I don't see. Well, I, I would submit that the reason is found, I'm not sure if you have one of these uh, back there, but on uh, Steve's table, if, if, if uh, he doesn't have it here, I'm sure you can get one from him. In the beginning of this uh, booklet, he has rules of reasoning from the scriptures. And there are seven of them, and the first six, I would have to say, are glorious. They're not just good. They're glorious, right? The first six are wonderful. And, but then, in the seventh, he opens a door in the back of the, the citadel, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of bad troops can come through that, that uh, opened gate. In this seventh rule for the, for the uh, exege exegesis of Scripture, this is one of the rules for exegesis that Steve gives. He says, the burden of proof usually falls more heavily upon one side of an argument than upon the other. 
It rests predominantly upon the side that is challenging what common sense, conventional wisdom, or plain initial evidence would ordinarily suggest. I want you to notice the authority that's being appealed to here. Common sense, conventional wisdom, and plain initial evidence. In other words, what I, think, what I thought initially was the case, common sense, uh, what I thought was the case. He goes on, for example, if common sense or plain evidence suggests that a God who did not control all human decisions could not be God, then the burden of proof would fall upon the non-Calvinist debater to show convincingly that God could still be God while deferring to man's free choice. On the other hand, if conventional wisdom and common sense suggest that God could not inevitably ordain sin without becoming the responsible party for sin, and he goes on, my, I my issue here is not to engage with his particular argument, but to point out the authority that he's appealing to. There are two authorities. One is common sense, conventional wisdom, what my initial reaction is. Well, if God foreordains all things, that makes me a puppet. Well, that's what common sense tells him. Frankly, that's what common sense tells me, too. Common sense tells me the same thing. But my authority is not common sense. My authority is scripture. There's one role that reason has. And the authority of reason is not to tell me what scripture cannot be saying or what scripture has to be trying to tell me. The role of reason is simply this, to unpack the text. What does the text say? And I don't, I, I don't have the authority to say, well, it can't be saying that because that would collide with common sense. There's something else, but I'll have to get to it later. <laughs> okay, thank you. 10 minutes. All right. Mr. Gray. Thank you, Douglas. Um, in Douglas's presentation, he didn't say enough things that I disagreed with to take me much time with it uh, because he, of course, argued for the sovereignty of God in many of the terms that I do. But where I disagree, as I've already mentioned, is in the likening of God's sovereignty or God's control over the universe with that of Shakespeare over Hamlet or, for that matter, any author over any play or novel. This I do not find to be a biblical analogy. And as I said, if it is true, which the Bible doesn't declare it to be, thank God it doesn't, it would make God the author of sin, since many of the chapters of this book are full of sin, and if God is the author of it all, then he's the author of sin as well. There's no getting around this. I do f know the difference between determinism, as philosophers talk about it, which suggests that all actions and choices are determined by previous actions and choices, and I was not accusing Calvinists of believing that doctrine. That is why I chose my words better. I used the term divine determinism. Uh, I did not talk about determinism because that's a, a philosophical category that I don't believe Calvinists believe in, and Douglas has said he does not. But I do not see how a person can teach that God wrote our lives the way Shakespeare wrote Hamlet and can object to my calling that divine determinism, since everything Hamlet did was determined by one mind and one will, and that's Mr. Shakespeare's not Hamlet's. Now, my suggestion is that Hamlet and Shakespeare are not a good analogy, and for a, a number of reasons. The first one is the Bible doesn't say that that would be a good analogy, in my judgment. Uh, but I do want to talk about the rules of reasoning from Scripture, if I could, because Douglas liked my first six. The seventh one he didn't like because I mentioned logic. In his book, Easy Chairs, Hard Words, he referred to logic as carnal reasoning. Yes, he referred to logic as carnal reasoning. Now, I must say that his, uh, 
his character in that book who represents the calvinist view ah has to admit as calvinists frequently do it's a mystery it's a mystery it's a mystery it's a mystery what is a mystery well how god can determine that i would sin inevitably and unchangeably and yet he doesn't interfere with my free will what how's that work well it's a mystery well i'll tell you what i do believe in mysteries i believe in the trinity for example you can breathe a sigh of relief <laughs> I believe the Trinity is a mystery, but the reason I believe it is because the Bible teaches it. I believe that, and I believe that we arrive at the Trinity not from some one text of Scripture, but from a reasonable consolidation of all that the text says about the being of God, which leads us to conclude through the normal processes of reasoning that these passages taken together must teach a Trinitarian doctrine. What we don't find is a parallel in this realm. We don't find anything in the Bible that says, if God determines everything, man is still free and responsible. It does go against our common sense, and thank God there's nothing in the Bible that calls us to believe that. Now, I do know that God uses the evil choices of men. Everyone knows that. Joseph's brothers, Pilate and Caiaphas, and all those people who did all those nasty things were used of God to carry out God's purposes. But the answer to that is actually found in a, uh, in a text that Douglas quoted earlier this evening. Uh, Proverbs 16:1, the preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. What that means is man makes his own decisions. He prepares his own heart, but God determines the outcome. Now, Joseph's brothers tried, wanted to kill Joseph, but God didn't let that happen. It wouldn't have suited God's purposes. God didn't create in them the desire to kill Joseph. In fact, God thwarted that desire. Nor did he create in them the desire to do away with them another way, but God permitted them. Same thing with Caiaphas. There's no reason to believe that God created in Caiaphas or Judas or any of those people their evil intentions. The preparations of the heart belong to man. That's very contrary. Calvinism says, no, the preparations of the heart, are, that's God's doing. But the Bible says, no, that's man's domain. The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the outcome is of the Lord. And the same chapter of Proverbs says the same thing another way. It says in verse 9, Proverbs 16, 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I can sit here and plan to go back to my motel room after this, but God will determine whether I get there safely or not because God determines the outcome. God determines the other factors. I, he doesn't determine what I will decide. And he doesn't determine what I will decide if I want to crucify Christ or if I want to fall at his feet and embrace Christ. That, if he did, would leave no responsibility with me. Now, I know that sounds like carnal reasoning, but it's the only kind of reasoning there is. The only alternative is desperate non-reasoning, because there's nothing in the Bible that says that God determines something and holds man accountable for what God determined. God continually argues that he did not determine these things. Cain is a perfect example. The New Testament tells us that Cain was a child of the devil. It says that in 1 John chapter 3. Hey, he wasn't elect, right? But in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain is cast down because God did not accept his offering, what did God say to Cain? He said, Cain, why are you cast down? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not also be accepted? That's an interesting question. It's rhetorical, of course. It means if you do well like Abel did, you will be accepted like Abel did. Now, if God had predestined Cain to be a child of the devil, and God had predestined that Cain would kill his brother and take choice did, then God was just playing games. He played games such as most monarchs wouldn't lower themselves to play, 
to determine this man's going to be executed, but go and talk to him like he's got a free will to, to change his way when he doesn't. I'm going to let you go. I'll, I'll turn my back and you can run the other direction. Then I'm going to shoot him in the back. That's not a very nice way to go. If God had predestined Cain to be lost and gave him no freedom of will, but God foreordained and determined that unchangeably as the Westminster Confession of Faith, as Calvin, as all Calvinists who are fair, uh, you know, to their view, believe, well, then God was lying when he suggested to Cain, you know, if you just do the same thing your brother did, you'll get the same approval from me that he got. And that's how God talks to people all the time. All the time. He suggests you'll be rewarded if you make the right choice. Those that honor me, I will honor. Conditional, isn't it? Those who believe shall be saved. Conditional. Man is given those choices. God in his sovereignty has not chosen to interfere in those areas completely. God does act upon us, there's no question. But in the final analysis, I believe the Bible teaches that the choice is man's. It's not God's, and many times God is very upset with the choices man makes. Hardly a reasonable thing for God to do if he foreordained them all. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we now have a period of cross-examination for 10 minutes, and we will begin with uh, Mr. Gregg asking Mr. Wilson questions. Well, I'm not as prepared for the cross-examination, uh, but I, I, do, I would like Douglas to show me a scripture that tells me that God foreordains everything that happens. Now, I'll tell you right off, to say that God says, my purposes will stand, I will do all my pleasure, that doesn't tell us he foreordains all that happens because it doesn't tell us what his pleasure is. It doesn't tell us whether it's his pleasure to give freedom or not give freedom. It only tells us that what God is determined to do and what is his pleasure to do, he'll do that, and I agree with that. Also, Ephesians 1.11, maybe you're going there, I don't know, I'll let you give it if you want to, but uh, sure. I don't think good exegesis will make that say that, but I, I should just give you the question and let you answer it. Let's give it a shot anyway. Ephesians 1.11. <laughs> you like to, would you like to quote it for us? <laughs> yeah, God, in whom, in God whom works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Yes, the whole verse, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And that proves that point for you? Well, it seems to me, uh, I'm a kind of a simple mind, but it seems that when it says he predestinated, predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, this means that he works all things after the counsel of his will. Okay, so when the Bible says that God does all things well, does that mean that, that he pole vaults well, or that he... Did he, did he what all well? Uh, when, when the Bible says he doeth all things well. Right. Um, when it says he does all things, does that literally mean he does all things, or that all things that he does, he does well? Now, in that passage, he does all things well. I would take it the way you suggest, that all things that he does, he does well. Okay, and why would it be unreasonable to suggest that when it says he works all things according to the counsel of his will, that it would mean equally all the things that he works conform to the counsels of his own will without saying that he is actually working all things that happen. Because of the rest of Ephesians chapter 1. Because what you're dealing with is in verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It tells us what the good pleasure of his will is. It is the 
my adoption as sons, uh, my adoption as a son, which is that the redemption of the body, if you look at Romans 8, the, the final, the resurrection mm -hmm. of the dead. I'm predestined to that, and I was predestined to that before the foundation of the world. An awful lot of things ride on me even being around in order to be predestined to that final end. And Ephesians chapter 1 is not just using a figure of speech, it's comforting saints who want to know that their lives are not blown about in the wind. It's secured. Well, you just said that it says that you were predestined. Is your name in there? Uh, no. It's in, a, it's in a different book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know I've read some of those books. They're published by Canon Press. Um, <laughs> no, not that one. <laughs> um, let me ask you this. You are aware that it does not say that I was predestined. It says that we were predestined. There's a collective there. It's Correct. the church. The church is predestined to be adopted as sons. Actually, it's just the Jews. But it, it, because there's a shift to the second um, person uh, from the first person, we, and then uh, later on he, he, he shifts, you also were included, speaking to the Gentiles. Okay, so the elect among the Jews are certainly not a different body than the elect among the Gentiles. That is certainly what Paul teaches in Ephesians right. 3. The, the, the cumulative effect is to say the middle wall of partitions come down, Jews and Gentiles together. What is true of the Jews is also true of the Gentiles. You are no doubt very familiar with the Arminian view. It's not the view of Arminius, but many Arminians teach it, that election is corporate rather than individual. Right. Okay. The airplane is destined to get there, but not the passengers. That's right. right. Exactly. The ship's destined to get there, but the passengers decide whether they stay on the ship or not. Uh, yeah, well, not exactly. There's or if door. they stay in there's the airplane a, or not. There's a door. That's right. There's <laughs> a door. The point here is, the point here is, this is the very figure of election that both Jesus and Paul give. And I'd like to hear you answer uh, John 15 about the vine and the branches and Romans 11 about the olive tree and the branches. Right. It seems clear to me that the branches are in the tree or in the vine and they are elect in the vine because the vine is elect. Both John 15 and Romans 11 will be a centerpiece to my presentation tomorrow on the perseverance of the saints. Then I should hold off on so, that. Too. But uh, with, with regard to this, um, where where Paul says, if you say uh, in Ephesians 1, the issue is uh, comfort to, to the saints, encouragement to the saints. At the end of Romans 8, where he asks a series of wonderful questions, he says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and there's a series of rhetorical questions here that Paul expects the answer um, to. He anticipates what the answer is. And if God is not exhaustively sovereign in the way I've been arguing for over every detail of my life, all of these questions fall to the floor. Shall tribulation, what, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, maybe, distress, probably, persecution, almost certainly, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, it's looking pretty grim if it's up to me. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, including my will, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
this is not academic, as I said at the beginning. This is pastoral. And if I know that the universe is out there with God governing lots of stuff, but I don't know exactly what, and people running around, running amok with their free wills, governing other stuff, and I don't know what it is, I have no comfort from a passage such as, such as this. These are pastoral truths. Predestination is not this dour, um, smelly doctrine thought up to scared little children. It's, um, it, it, it was uh, exegeted from the passage, pages of Scripture in order to comfort the saints. So God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means I can be confident in all things. What do you make of the fact that the book of Luke tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees rejected the will of God for themselves by not being baptized by John? Did God work that? Thank you for asking that question because that was the thing I wasn't going to be able to get to. Um, <laughs> there's a difference. The Bible makes a distinction between the decretive and the perceptive will of God. Whose will was it that Jesus go to the cross? Well, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Then in Acts 4, it says, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and all the Jews did what God's will determined beforehand to be done. Uh, when Jesus went to the cross, it was God willing it before the foundation of the world. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. It was the will of Jesus submitting to that. It was the will of Judas betraying Jesus for who knows what reason. It was the will of Peter denying Jesus in just the way that he said he was going to deny him before the, this whole thing is scripted down to the behavior of the chickens, right? Before the, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Herod, Pontius Pilate, all these people, they all did what God determined beforehand to be done. So it doesn't, was Judas doing the will of God when he betrayed Jesus? Well, yes and no. He was, no, he was breaking the Ten Commandments. He was betraying his Lord. He was not doing the will of God. Was he doing the will of God that Jesus mentioned in the garden? Yes, he was. So when, when we say, um, Paul says in Thessalonians, this is the will of God concerning you, that you avoid sexual immorality. Well, there are Christians who fall into sexual immorality. They violate the will of God. They break the will of God. That's the preceptive will of God. It's a violation of his precepts, his commands, which is different than a violation of his decrees. If God says, let there be light, the, light, the darkness can't say, no, I'm not going to. And the Bible does say that when a Christian falls into fornication, that is agreeing with God's decretal will. Uh, yes. It, it, when a Christian and where falls does it say that? God works all things according to the, the pleasure of his will. Okay, but he's not the author of sin. Right. So when the baby that's born as a result arrives, it's a surprise to God? No surprises, but God didn't determine that man would sin. He didn't determine this baby would come into being? He knew that the baby would become a sinner. Did he know the baby was going to come into being and create no problem, the world? Yes. And he created the world anyway. Yep. And this baby comes to faith in Christ, grows up and comes to faith in Christ, and that baby's name is known to God before the foundation of the world that he'll come to salvation. And yet God doesn't determine decretively the act of fornication that brought that child into being. No, I don't believe he did. So God determines the effect but not the cause. We're being commanded to stop. Yes, we are. At a very inopportune time. <laughs> <laughs> commanded to stop just in time because he was already shifting the questions yeah, over to you. Yeah, now you do that to me. <laughs> so you yeah, have, one up. so let's you follow have, up. You, you, have <laughs> you have ten minutes to continue that line. <laughs> so let's do. 
did, did God determine the effect and not the cause? I believe that God permitted the particular cause because he permits everything that happens. He doesn't stop it. But at the same time, if that baby should have been born, if God determined that baby should be born ages before, he could have brought it about through a more uh, a, a, a union that complied with his stated will. Now, we, he, we he, uses, he, uses the sin, he causes the wrath of man to praise him. And even the sexual immorality of man, he can cause to praise him. That does not mean that God decreed that the man would have wrath. It only means that God is very ingenious and can exploit all things uh, and work them together for good. We don't, we don't disagree that God could have done it another way. But when God determined that this child would grow up to, to believe in him and live eternally with him, God determined that that child who would serve him forever in heaven came from the, the result of an immoral union. That's the world in which it happened, and God knew it was going to happen that way before it happened. So when God determines the effect, does he determine the effect in this world without determining the cause in this world? Now, you see, I don't have a degree in philosophy, so you've got me at a disadvantage there. But as far as exegesis is concerned, the Bible says that God does not will for people to sin. He does not will for them to perish. He didn't, it never entered his mind to command it. And to suggest that God decreed infallibly and unchangeably foreordained that a certain sin would happen, though God <clears throat> adamantly says it never entered his mind to command such a thing, um, I, think is, I, I think that takes some fancy philosophical footwork. I, I do believe that that child came into the world because of the will of God. But I do believe that God, if, those, if that couple had not fornicated, God could have taken the same spirit and put it in a child that was conceived in a, in a, a better union. Sure, God we, uses the sins that people do, but he doesn't decree that they should sin. We agree that God could have done it differently. Right. But, and we, but we're both okay. maintaining that this is the way he did it, right? Well, that's, that's, he exploited the sinner's choice. He did not make the sinner's choice. He did not decree that the sinner would make that choice. Now, uh, what you're doing is you're saying that the, the word will is univocal, that there's only one definition. No, there are other definitions. Obviously, some people have, well, for example, I may wish that my children would go into the ministry. Uh, it might be my will that my son would go into the ministry. But I also want him to make his own choice. And therefore, at another level, it's my will that he do whatever he chooses to do, even if he chooses what I don't prefer. But to say that I choose for him to make his own decision does not mean I choose for him to make wrong decisions. And uh, I will live with wrong decisions if he makes them. And, and I will say that is, of course, part of his being a responsible adult. I believe that God's will, his overarching will, is that he made man responsible. And he made man, in a sense, like himself, morally uh, alert, morally alive. Uh, we can get into the dead and trespass and sins tomorrow, maybe. Uh, but the, uh, that God made man with the capable of make, uh, capability of making choices because God wanted man to have that responsibility and that choice. Now, it doesn't mean that God wanted the man to commit fornication. But God didn't stop him because he preferred for the man to make the choice. But you're, what you're doing is you're making the same distinction that Calvinists make, only you're calling it by different names. We say that God prohibits certain things in his commandments. That's his preceptive will, his precepts, his commandments. And so when people sin, they're violating the will of God, which we could both find places, plenty of places in Scripture, where God says, you ought not to violate my, violate my will. And people, when they sin, are recorded as having violated his will. The Bible uses the word will that way. But the Bible also uses God's will with regard to the decrees of God. 
Right? When God says, uh, thou shalt not steal, that's an expression of the will of God in one sense. When God says, let there be light, that's the expression of the will of God in another sense. It's not the same kind of expression. When God says, this is what I want you to do, and I will punish you if you don't do it, but you can physically do it in the world, that's an expression of his will. When he says, I am going to do this, that's an expression of his will, and the Bible uses the word will in both cases. So we simply say, this is will A and this is will B, decretive, perceptive. And it answers all the scriptural data that you're concerned about. So when, when God says uh, he works out all things in accordance with the counsel of his will, that's his decretive will. Well, see, I do agree that there are two levels of will, but I explained it differently than you do, and I don't use the word decretive will because although both Arminians classically and Calvinists have had no trouble talking about God's decrees of salvation, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't talk about such. The Bible doesn't use the word decree that way. It doesn't say that God has a decretal will that's different than his percept uh, preceptive will. It, uh, we could talk uh, about God's permissive will, and that's not the same as decreeing. How about what his, God permits. How about he, his predestining will? Well, that's not, that's not the same concept either, because the Bible doesn't use the word predestined that way. The word predestined is only found in two passages in the Bible, and it's not used that way. Right, but you, you haven't handled how it's handled in okay, Ephesians me, 111 yet. How predestination is used? Yeah, he being oh, yeah. predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, well, I'll be glad to handle it. The, the Bible talks about predestination as the thing that God has determined will be the destiny of those who believe in Christ, who are in Christ. God has predestined that those who are in Christ will be adopted as sons. Yes. God has predestined that those who are in Christ will be eventually conformed to his image, yes. Romans 8. So the predestination is not who will get saved. The predestination is what will happen to those who are. Yes. It does not tell us that God predestinated you to be saved or me to be saved. It says that God predestinated that those who are in Christ will have this destiny. That's not the same thing at all of saying that he decreed that I would be in Christ or you would be in Christ. He decrees a destiny for his people. He does not say who will be or who will not be. So God then, does not decree that. So then you would say that all that list of things um, in Romans 8, every last one of them, could separate some people from... No, none of those things could, but Paul did not mention our choices. Now, you, you did mention our choices. You were reading when he said things to come. Yeah, and you said that would include our future choices. No, you didn't read carefully because he says, or any other created thing. When Paul talks about things that are or things to come or any other created thing, a decision is not a created thing. A decision is an action. And it's not an action of God's. It's not created. It's, it's an action of a free moral agent that God has given it's the either, opportunity to. It's either created or uncreated. No, you're, you're talking as though, and Calvinists do this, they talk as though decisions are things. Now, don't object to carnal reasoning here. I don't like carnal reasoning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a will is not a thing. A will is a philosophical concept that describes the power to make choices. Okay. A choice is not a thing. A choice is an action. Okay, I, I would be happy to dispute that point with you, but let me give it to you and then say this uncreated will, this action in the world, can tribulation, nakedness, famine, peril, sword, threats, principalities, and so forth, can that, those things all have an impact on someone's choosing? They can if the person chooses for them to. The fact of the matter is Paul is saying that we are, our salvation does not depend on our strength to resist those kinds of things, but it's as First Peter chapter 1 says that we are kept by the power of God through faith. As long as we have faith, then we are kept by a power beyond ourselves that's 
greater than tribulation and principalities and powers. And all, there, there is nothing that can overpower the power of God. But a renunciation of our faith removes so, us from that protection. So basically, my will is something that can negate every protection in this chapter. Yes. So what good's the chapter? The chapter, well, well I don't, what, com I, what comfort is it? It's a great comfort for me because I don't expect any of those things to overpower my will because I have, I have the choice. I don't have to renounce but, Christ. But look where the, look at the subtle shift in your faith. Is it a faith in God or a faith in your will? You didn't catch my meaning. My choice is to trust Christ. If I trust Christ, I am kept by his power. The choice to not trust Christ is to trust in me. But when I say I have the choice, it's given to me to put my faith in Christ, then where is my faith? It's not in me, it's in Christ. It's in you believing in Christ. Well, if you wish to put it that way, I, I, but that's not what the Bible says. Well, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. One minute. All right. How, uh, I alluded to this earlier, and this has been at the edges, but really quickly, do you believe that God knows every event exhaustively before the world's created? I am presently of that opinion. Do you, uh, do you believe that he created the world from nothing? I do. Okay. How can you avoid the conclusion that this world is here this evening because God put it here knowing what would happen? I don't avoid that conclusion. I believe that's exactly correct. So he determined what would happen. I didn't say he determined it. He created a world and he invented contingencies. He invented conditions. He, that, that is, he created those options and he gave a man and woman free choice to make choices. God knew what they would choose, I believe. Now, of course, some openness theology people don't even believe that, but I do. Uh, I believe God knew, but I don't believe that God determined everything that happened. Now, God did determine, oops, it says stop. God did determine the overall program, and that included our choices. He took those into consideration, but he didn't determine them. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have now three minutes for closing statements from, from each gentleman, beginning with Mr. Gregg. Well, I, I better look at my watch. I really have only to reiterate what I said earlier. I do not believe there's anything in the Bible that talks about God determining all things. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that says that God determines what men will choose in particular. Now, God decides whether what they choose will materialize in what they wish. It says in Psalm uh, 21, I think it's verse 11, it says, they intended an evil work against you, but they were not able to perform it. Well, why not? Well, because God didn't let them perform it. But they did intend to, and God did not ordain that they would intend to. If he, I mean, he ordained that they wouldn't succeed. Why would he ordain that they would have these intentions when he didn't plan to, that wasn't in his plan to happen? I believe that God has power over all things and authority over all things. That's what the divine sovereignty in the Bible means, as well as in the dictionary. But I don't believe that that in any sense teaches, or that the Bible teaches, that a God who does not determine all things that people choose is somehow not sovereign or is not God. He, for me, as a sovereign in my home, to allow liberty to my children is not a renunciation of my sovereignty, it's an exercise of it. If I wish to be a tyrant in my home, my unfortunate children will have no choice in the matter. I'm sovereign. If I choose to be more democratic or more kindly or more considerate, my children also don't make any decisions about that. I do. I'm the sovereign. 
but my style of governing is not the same thing as my sovereignty when we talk about total determinism we're not talking about the sovereignty of god we're talking about god's style of governing and the calvinist believes that his style is exhaustive and that he controls all things and decrees all that will be i don't believe that i don't believe the bible teaches it thank you okay three minutes okay this will be the fastest of all um picture a man at the top of a flight of stairs who has the power to bring pennies into existence and he makes this determination I'm gonna create a thousand pennies and I'm gonna pitch them down the stairs and I know beforehand where each of them is going to land and whether they'll be heads or tails I know that and I'm gonna bring these pennies into existence and blam they're into existence and down they go and then they sure enough they land right where he knew that they were going to land the decision to create those pennies and pitch them down the stairs means that he has determined that outcome. If, and this was what was behind my series of questions, if you believe that God knows all things beforehand, before they come to pass, and if you believe that God created from nothing, then that necessarily entails, I think by good and necessary consequence, it's just, it, it's a, a strict deductive operation, that if God had not made that choice to create the world, we wouldn't be here. He knew that we would be here if he created the world, and he created the world anyway. That means he did it because he wanted this state of affairs to be. Now, we might debate why he wanted this state of affairs to be. Some might say it's because he wanted man to have free will or because of the glory of God or whatever. But God's creation from nothing with knowledge beforehand necessitates a form of determinism, divine determinism, not uh, philosophical determinism. I also want to remind you of the, the hermeneutical commitment that drives this, and it's not just a matter of having read it from the booklet, but I think you've seen this hermeneutical commitment in operation in, in how Steve responds to certain texts. I think he sees certain things in the text because common sense tells him that if he didn't see that in the text, he would have to adopt some form of, you know, God, God as puppet master, or God as tyrant, or God as control freak. And uh, I don't think the Bible uh, requires that at all. I think the safest thing for us to do is to just let reason tell us what the text actually says. If another text tells us something that is, that's difficult to harmonize with the first text, we simply accept it as what God says, and God will sort it out in due time. And as we study the scriptures more carefully and over time as we grow in grace and wisdom. Many of these things will be resolved in this life and some of them, uh, some of the profounder mysteries, the Trinity, how God could create from nothing and how God can be fully exhaustively sovereign and man fully exhaustively free, responsible for his actions, I think is in, uh, in that number. I also want to remind you that, uh, that Steve has been in the difficult position of, of defending the fact that God does not determine that, that God can determine the effect but not the cause and the the, the simplest uh, example of this is I'm gonna have to stop <laughs> thank you thank you and please join me in thanking both of our speakers Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled, Is Calvinism Biblical? If you'd like to hear the rest of the debate, 
that includes topics such as the Calvinist view of atonement and perseverance, you can purchase it at canonpress.com.